millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm at dinner last night with a group of people, told them I was going to be on your show, and they literally, one person pulls me up, do you know how liberal that person is? What the hell are you doing going on his show? This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello and welcome. I'm Royfield Brown. This is Mid-Atlantic, the podcast which normally looks at news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. Today, we're doing one of our deep dives where we look at one issue in detail. In this episode, we're going to have an interview with Robert G. Marber, a prominent right-wing homeless advocate who was appointed by President Trump in 2019 to lead the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness. Marbot is known for his unique and controversial methods in addressing the homelessness crisis, which has escalated to over 650,000 Americans on any given night being without proper shelter. And that's according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development. So today, what we're going to do is explore Marbot's approach to tackling the issue amidst the rising housing shortage and prices in the U.S. Take a drive down Los Angeles' Skid Row, filled with tents, people, and growing frustration. If I can get back in to another residence, then I won't make the same mistakes I made before. According to new federal data, a record number of people are now unhoused. More than 653,000, a 12% population increase since last year. Mel Tilakaratna runs a nonprofit that provides free showers to people living on the street. The system is completely overwhelmed. Tilakaratna points to a rise in housing costs, the opioid epidemic, mental health issues, and the migrant crisis as factors exacerbating the problem in LA. We have families, asylum seekers, to families in LA who become homeless, and prior where we would be able to send them to a motel or a shelter within a couple of days, now there's absolutely no resources. These issues are also creating friction in major cities. Back in September, New York Mayor Eric Adams revealed new fears as tens of thousands of asylum seekers flooded the city. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. In Phoenix, the city recently cleared a large encampment located downtown. 
it seems that the quote-unquote cleanup that the city did just spread the mess out a lot further. People going through everyone's dumpsters, dragging stuff out into the streets. Across L.A., officials have tried to clear out encampments. They come here tents and then all your stuff will be gone. This year, Los Angeles County declared a state of emergency. Dana Griffin, NBC News, Los Angeles. How are you today, sir? Good. Thank you for caring about this issue and having us on. No, it's absolutely an issue which is really incredibly important to me. Number one, I'm an urbanist, so I believe in cities. I like cities. I think that they are, if we want to live a more environmentally friendly life, we need to live in cities. I think humans are social animals, so we need human contact. And a lot of our economy is predicated on the fact that we live, work and learn closer to each other. That's not to say that the country doesn't have its own benefits. But cities, I think, are one of the key drivers for human growth and development. So the fact that increasingly throughout the Western world, people find themselves homeless is, I think, should be a point of shame for all of us. And homelessness is something which is just exponentially rising, not just in the U- US, but in the UK, Canada, you name it. But these countries are experiencing homelessness. That, those are the reasons why this is such a topic which is really close to my heart. Why is homelessness such a topic which you've devoted your professional priority. The why is uh, everything you just mentioned. I, I'm a former mayor pro tem of San Antonio, so I, I believe in cities too. And sadly, I see so many cities hollowing out, especially the West Coast cities are, are the predominant areas where that has happened, not totally. And it's also, by the way, becoming more rural. Now that the numbers are approaching 3 million, and one of the things I think we need to talk about when we talk about homeless, are we talking about uh, family and children? That's 1.5. Are we talking about all HUD uh, defined? They have five categories. That's 1.2. Or are we talking about the street level homeless, which a lot of media focuses on? And that's about 650,000. That's a subset of those other two. And I, like so many other, have been affected in our own family by homelessness. And it started out as volunteering with my community, with my church, and then it became a public policy issue. And then it became later a personal issue in my family. So your faith is a a key part of the reason why you feel so passionately about this issue. It's in part. It's not the only And it's funny, you mentioned, and candidly, I get introduced very similarly. I'm controversial because 15 years ago, I said, housing alone won't work. And this new idea that they said would end homeless in 10 years, it didn't. Uh, Last year, when the president announced in 10 years, if we did this, homeless would end, and it hasn't. In many categories, it's doubled. Some categories, it's tripled. And I predicted that 10 years ago. I said, anytime you try to, especially that 650,000, which is where most people focus on, mm-hmm. the idea that you say a house is going to solve the problem. Housing doesn't fix mental illness, untreated mental illness. Housing doesn't address substance use. Housing doesn't directly affect uh, or direct a job training situation and proper placement. Housing is certainly part of it and has to be part of it. But what we're finding, 
the JAMA study, if you haven't read one of the top three medical journals in the world, left of center, not right of center, did a study of San Francisco as a test case of California, and they found that the death rate had doubled one year after the start of COVID. And they went in with the assumption that it was all these COVID deaths. And what they found was zero, literally zero. They set that in the report of all the deaths where COVID related, zero of the, the increase. And what they found was it was drug overdose Almost all, I think 94%, I can't remember what they finally landed on. There were some vehicular pedestrian deaths and such, too, that are horrific. But most of the overdose were people who received a housing first apartment, but they did not get treatment for their substance use and died. So the death rate in California, and you can pretty much look at every city, has doubled in the last 25 months. And if you go look at the coroner reports, Almost zero of that is COVID. And I mean zero, like one, two. That's what it is. Uh, uh, Dr. Marbert, there's no two ways about it. As somebody who is a Bay Area, I was going to say native, I'm not native, but I've lived in San Francisco and Oakland. That's my American home. There is no two ways about it. As beautiful as California and the Bay Area is, as a Brit going there for the first time in 2014, I was shocked and appalled. And let's be honest about it, disgusted with the level of homelessness and in those 10 years, it appears to have got worse. Whatever the, the statistics actually say, visually, it has got worse. And there are peculiar issues around California and specifically San Francisco. You go to somewhere like the Tenderloin, and I will potentially upset a lot of my own lefty-leaning friends when I say there is too much liberalism in inverted commas, that goes on there. However, it, I think it's unfair to go to the situation in San Francisco as being emblematic of the homelessness issue in the United States. First and foremost, there isn't enough housing stock. So where should we, is it, shouldn't we really just start with maybe the systematic structural reasons why so many Americans, and ditto now increasingly Brits, Canadians, etc., find themselves without a home. It isn't all because they're on drugs, though I think with a specific population of people then find themselves homeless, then they are more prone and prey to drug uh, abuse because it's one of the ways of getting them through the hardship of the situation that they're in. Don't get me wrong. Some people have that as an issue, and then become homeless. The vast majority don't. And that's exactly why when you talk about homeless, we need to talk about what group are we talking about? Are we talking about family and children? Are we talking about veteran? Are we talking about military sexual trauma? Or are we talking street-level homeless? And right now, street-level homeless, which is that 650,000 people, is doubling every five to six years now, four or five or six years. That's the real rate. That's the rate put out last two, last month by the current president, the current administration. That is doubling. Other parts of homelessness are economic-driven, divorce economics, domestic violence, but street-level homelessness, 75%, according to the University of Berkeley, not a right-winging, a university at UCLA, 
75%, three-fourths have a untreated mental illness, three-fourths have a substance use. What's incredible about their study, it's the largest study ever, 64,000 people, self-reporting, why did you become homeless? Half self, a little over half self-report it's substance use disorders. Over half report it's untreated mental illness. That's the self-report. What we know about self-report, that always underestimates. When you look at their clinical charts, it's 75%. And so for I agree there's economic issues, but if you build 100,000 houses, and Judge Carter, who's also a Democrat in California and L.A., pointed this out in his famous lawsuit down in Los Angeles, he says, it's, this is not a housing issue. This is a lack of treatment for substance use or mental health. But at that 650000 I grant you there's a whole lot of other homelessness that is different. And, and one of my complaints has been from maybe some of your friends on the left. I, I have complaints on the right, on the right too. I got, But used to be I was attacked by the right 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Now I get attacked by the left. And I haven't changed. I'm in the middle. And my view is, we have 10 different types of homelessness per the federal definition. That's not a clinical definition. That's not somebody who's worked in the field. And the idea that one size fits all is going to work with all 10 of these when some are economically driven, some are uh, a housing market, especially in tourist areas. Uh, that's the big area where housing costs. But I can take you to some parts of the country where housing costs are unbelievably under $100,000 to buy houses, and they still have homeless problems. And so if we don't, for that 650000 if we don't treat the substance use of the mental health, untreated mental health, in most cases, untreated, sometimes it's undertreated, and we could go into that. When we, In 1950, we had roughly 500,000 federally funded mental health beds in the United States. It's now about 30,000. Most state hospitals are closed and are only on forensic hospitals now. There's the mental health system has been hollowed out in America. And candidly, there's blame on both sides. On one side, President Reagan, and I'm right of center, you're left to center, we know that. But President Reagan did, I think, a lot of good things. But one thing he I disagree with is when he was governor of California, he said government should not be in the mental health business. And he and when he became president, he kept that and he said we shouldn't be doing it. But I will tell you, my friends on the left were watching Mother Flew of the Cuckoo Nest, thought it was a documentary, and said, Let's throw out the entire mental health system and went into deinstitutionalization and harm reduction which doesn't work. What I know for absolute certainty of being, and I've been in more cities than anybody else. I've lived on the street for six months. I've been at walk the Tenderloin by myself with police. I've probably been in the Tenderloin 20 times, 15 times. And what I know with absolute certainty, you're not going to get recovery if you hang out in a park bench and you're not going to get recovery being on a jail cell floor criminalization doesn't work, arresting your way out doesn't work, but also being able to allow people to hang out and form encampments and hang out of things. What we know works for certainty is treatment. Will it work for everybody? No, it won't. I'm not, a, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not one of these, 
you're going to end homeless in five years and 10 years. I'm not President uh, Obama who said, we will end homeless in 10 years. By the way, when you go through his numbers of ending veteran, chronic, all those numbers were supposed to be before COVID. All of them basically doubled and tripled. Each category is a little different, and there's some reasons why. And cost of housing is there. But the reason why California is so important to look at, San Francisco, L.A., don't care where you pick, California now represents, in many categories, 40 to 50% of the different subcategories of homelessness. There was a period of time where Skid Row in Los Angeles was 25% of the people on the street every single night. And I think you have to ask, why is California worse than, say, Florida? Similar weather environment, housing costs on the coastal areas are actually quite similar. Not the interior, but the, the coastal areas, the tourism areas, let's say Miami, St. Petersburg, Clearwater, or it is very similar, surprisingly similar. Why is it Florida has less than California? And, and it's this simple. California was the only state in America that said all of our federal funding is going to go into housing first, and we can talk about that, and all the state money goes there, and if you want city and county matching money, their money has to go. So it's tripling down on something that President Obama said in 2013 would end homeless in 10 years, and it didn't, and it's simple. We disconnected housing vouchers from treatment and recovery. I'm not against housing vouchers at all. Uh, that's part of the program. But it has to be accompanied with treatment. And what we know from the JAMA study, if you put a person into a, a, a house, an apartment, a condo, without treatment, they will die at twice the rate of what was happening before. That's mathematical certain. We know that all up and down California. And so the reason why California is problematic is they've doubled down on stupid. And I, I, I don't know any other way to say it. And, and in some counties, they've tripled down. And when Judge Carter puts out his report and starts to sound like me, and, and let me throw out a few other. Governor Brown has gone backwards. He thinks we need to have mandatory treatment now. He did a KCET 30-minute thing, and he went through it. President Obama in the Lemon Town Hall last year said, we need mandatory treatment for, for prison and jail. I agree with you much more than I thought I was going to. Right. But I'm a little bit worried, though, that we've... And you have really framed this really well, to be fair to you. You said there are 600,000 people who are homeless every night, and disproportionately, those are people who have some level of drug Oh, substance abuse issues. But that's a fact, disproportionately. Yeah, not 650,000. Yeah, out of that 650,000 who are people who are experiencing chronic homelessness. And just to run through the numbers of the homeless within the United States, these are positive 2022, 22% are chronically homeless. 16, 6% of those are vets, 5% are unaccompanied youth under 25, which I just found shocking it, in the extreme, right? that we have uh, so many young people who are homeless. And that number is actually higher because you're quoting the HUD numbers. Okay. HUD has five categories, but Department of Education has five. 
and they are K through 12 through the school districts. And when you look at that number, the number you're talking about is actually dramatically much, much higher than that. Well, one of the things that's really shocked me, so many things shocked me about homelessness and full disclosure, homelessness in the Western world. And you brought up Reagan. I'm so glad that you did before I did with the start of supply side economics and the hollowing out of government services in the United States and in the UK, we, we saw a very small but perceptible rise in homelessness. But it was that small that we could just ignore it for about 20 years or so. By the end of the 1990s, specifically in the United States, you couldn't really start to ignore it anymore. Okay, We couldn't just say these were people just hard on their luck and it's going to be fine. But you start to have numbers like 650,000 or whether it's 3 million, that is the system is broken. And part of the way which the system can be put together and should be put together is definitely mental health. But also, we need to build some more homes, right? Well, and I think that's where I, I thought you and I were going to disagree there. And one of the problems with San Francisco, specifically California, is nimbyism as well. So you have the perverseness of people who will say, I believe in society, I believe in community, and that government does have a role. But when it comes to their home, which is everyone's biggest single investment, for most people, the biggest single investment is their home. They don't want to jeopardize the price of that by having a block away, some affordable housing, which is going to pull down their property values. And San Francisco is literally unique in the way that it's structurally and physically small space, any nine square miles, et cetera, et cetera. There are endemic problems. NIMBYism is a massive it one. But I just wanted to quickly say something because I'm, I'm loving this conversation. And you and I, we can have two minute monologues and go backwards and forwards. And I'm all I'm totally up to that. And but I want to get into your, your housing. Okay. So let's start. Economic housing is actually most impactful of the families with children. Mm-hmm. If you look at the real data, don't look at the, don't look what advocates are put out. Look at the 10 categories of homelessness. Housing cost is most damaging to the families with children. And here's why. You have three or four people. It's easier to house you or me as a single person than it, it's harder to house somebody in a family unit, which need multiple beds, multiple bigger space, et cetera. And here's my deal on housing. If it, Judge Carter's decision is must read if you want to talk about housing. Because you got a nimbyism problem, not in my backyard. I want to, and that's all over it. The movie I'm involved with, No Address, both the documentary and the movie, we have a whole buildup scene with Billy Baldwin and Patricia Velasquez, the big stars. That that the one of the peak in the movie that I didn't know a lot about movie stuff until about fourteen months ago, but the sort of escalation inside the movie, the drama is about a nimbyism moment, and that is absolutely part of it. And there's a lot of reasons behind it, fear of the unknown. But there's some places in America that have built facilities and they're so well run, the neighborhood cost goes up. The property value actually goes up. It's not where you locate a place. It's how well you run it and how well you design the building. So that's number one. In terms of affordability, and this is what Judge Carter said in his study, why is it more people have died on the street in L.A. than new houses have been built, housing property, when they have spent a roughly 
billion dollars and more people have died on the street. Think about that. More people have died on the street than housing's been made. And they have a bond issue called Triple H. They have another bond issue called H. And they have regularly spend about $2 billion. And when I was in the White House, I met everybody focused on something else. There's another, th- I met with the uh, Council of Counties, the Councils of Cities, and I met with many mayors up and down uh, California. And I said, if you want affordable housing, let's do something. Every time, and, and I had a, a governor say, I need 50,000 vouchers. And I said, I'll go help you get 50,000 vouchers if you do one thing on the California side. And he said, what's that? I said, totally drop all your housing fees, your planning fees, your thing. Why is it in California it costs, in most cities in California, it costs more than $100,000 in taxes, planning fees, permits, all this, and I don't mean, and I don't mean regulation. We're not even going there, but I'm just mean fees that you write a check. There's one city in California. It's, I think it's $138,000 to get a doorknob. I meant just to get, that's the, what we talked about it to get it going. What would happen if the federal government who provides most of the vouchers, and I said, I would go help you get, I will walk with you to Congress and help you. I'll work inside the White House and help you. But here's the thing you got to do. You have to zero out every fee, every tax, every permitting, because California roughly runs 40% more than the rest of the country in fees, not building. You you can talk about location. You can talk about brick and mortar and wood. But why does the city charge more in California? If you're real serious about affordable housing, make it affordable. Zero out your fees. If you're going to use a federal voucher, why, in essence, do you take federal taxpayer dollars to subsidize a city or county? Why don't we just get rid of all that? But we know the reason why affordable housing in the United States and also in the United Kingdom not is not as stigmatized is not something which people want to hear is because it's associated with African-Americans, isn't it? Rightly or wrongly, it's associated with African-Americans. So you start to say to... I, I, I have to throw a flag here. That's not what the stats are. Now, that may be what no, some no, people no. emotionally no. feel. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's, but it's but not. that's not what the stats are. No, In San Antonio, it's Hispanic community. It's not it black. It's not Anglo. It's no, Hispanic it, community. Again, and, and I thought I, I, I implicit in that's what people emotionally think. And then they go, this is a handout to people who just need to pull themselves up by, by their bootstraps. But... I am part Californian. I spend a lot of time there. Homelessness is concentrated in certain states and cities. California, New York, both blue. Florida, ah, red. Washington, uh, blue. And Texas account for 55% of the homeless population in the US. So it's not all just blue states, California, and then to do with various local laws. This is fundamentally systemic, isn't it? And don't get me wrong, there are local varieties which may be exacerbated. And, and, and one of them had to be explained to me about California is the whole pool of the, of the whole kind of go west thing. You can reinvent yourself. As a Brit, we, we don't have that over here. So that whole part of that mythos is partly one of the reasons why people have traveled to California and to Western states. And But do you know what? People on the street, if you ask, why do you go to California? 
They say because we get free stuff. I'm, I'm literally to, telling I'm you. Going to, I was going to come on to that. Do not get me wrong, right? I'm not here to be an apologist for everything which is done in San Francisco, um, etc. And when I have friends and family that come to the Bay Area for the first time, one of the many things I, I show them the Golden State Bridge. I, I tell them the Bay Bridge is actually, I think, more beautiful, definitely at night than the, the Golden State Bridge. I'll take them to the Mission District. We'll go all over, right? The we, Presidio is beautiful. The Presidio is, is wonderful. And I tell them about the history of the military base that was there. And, and now Spielberg's there. But I all, also have to take them to the Tenderloin. And you want to see the faces of everybody just drops it. How is this allowed to be? How is this allowed to be? So I'm not here to be an apologist for California, but there is a wider issue. If we are seeing rising homelessness in the UK, which has got nothing to do with the things which you've said. Okay. But listen, in the United States, Mm -hmm. if we want to reduce housing and make it affordable to build, and in Judge Carter's report, why is it in California more expensive to build government-subsidized per square foot versus market rate. That's Judge Carter points that out. And Judge Carter's this is a guy who went after Trump, remember. This is the not this is not a Robert Marbet shill. This is a Democrat judge, federal judge. And he said, why is it cost more for the government to build a unit than it is a private sector to build a unit? That's number one. And number two is Every mayor I met with in California, I said, if you want to get it, you want federal government money. And I said, I'm going to go help you, but I need you to reduce your cost because if we're going to bring money to the table, don't take federal taxpayer to subsidize local taxpayer. That makes no sense. In fact, at one time, there's some old Supreme Court rules back to the 1820s that said you weren't supposed to do that. And but we do it now. And so if you want to be, and you brought up blue, I, you'll notice I don't talk about blue-red. I, I, to me, this should be a nonpartisan issue. This should be a common sense issue. But if you're in a city in California and your cost of housing is 40% more, why don't you zero out all of your fees? And that's a local decision, not a federal decision. Zero it out, and I will go to bat for you. But I'm not going to go to bat for you to increase vouchers if you're just going to increase the cost. The idea that you spend it, it, a- it's power of nimbyism and it's the power of the way that the American system is set up with, I would say, the chimera of the illusion of total democracy without getting super technical about this, because you can you'll always be able to trump me, pun not intended on the detail and the policies and how they right. impacted locally within the United States. I can't compete with you there. You were you were a, a, a government minister in 2019, so you know of what you speak. But one of the things which is really stark about American, local American democracy is the power of the individual. And that is trumping, again, surpassing, there's the stop, we're using the word Trump, surpassing the communal and the uh, societal, local societal good, that somebody can hold their hand up and say, no, this affects me personally. Bear in mind, we all need nurses, we all need teachers, we all need people that don't um, earn a lot of money 
to make our societies work, but we are prepared to make it harder and harder for them actually to live and work in our most prosperous cities. Because my short-term interest is for my house price to accrue. And, and we don't quite have the same pressures in European local government that we have various bodies that just say, this is for the communal or the civic good type of thing. Do not get me wrong. I'm not saying we have the balance, right? My home city in Birmingham, where I was speaking to you right now, has gone technically bankrupt. It was something which never happened in British cities. And then there's about five which have now gone bankrupt. And for me, it's systematic. And where I've had a real kind of epiphany with you and what you're saying is that you take this back to Ronald Reagan. And I take it back to Margaret Thatcher in, in the United Kingdom. And it is the hollowing out of social services, whether it's mental health, those first remedial services which help people who might be falling into trouble, have maybe fallen into trouble, but it's not chronic, have gone. And we have much higher living costs. So go make, make, make sure you remember both parts of that. I said it was a mistake made on the far right and far left. The far right was saying, we're going to stop doing these services. And the far left was literally watching one of flew over the cuckoo's nest and thought it was a documentary. And they moved in this deinstitutionalization movement and they moved into harm reduction. And um, harm reduction, I think, is probably one of the most important conversations America should be talking about that nobody has really gotten in the nitty gritty because it sounds so good. But I got to tell you, in San Francisco, I've never said I've seen it in Philadelphia, too. I, I will say I've seen it both places. I took the film crew right down a block and a half away from City Hall, block from the FBI building, two blocks away from DEA, one block away from the Ninth Circuit federal court that caused a lot of this. And the city is running a $23 million ballpark safe consumption site. So they put a rain around, they put Narcon in, they put it, and they give them straws, they give them foil, they give them pipes, they give them this. And they're spending $23 million and less than 5% were even told about treatment. It doesn't mean 5% went into treatment. Here's a piece of paper about treatment. I'll give it to you. And my deal is, and you wanted to, you say you, you don't want to get wonky. So let's keep it, let's keep it big and real at a high level. Our process in America. To be fair, so what I says was, you'll beat me on the one career. Okay, so I'm going to go way up. I'm going to go way up. And I can't tell you how much I believe this. We need to make it right now in our government policy, our systematic. It's not racism. It's not this and that. Right now, our processes in America are we're making it easy to get high and hard to get treatment. We need to make it easy to get treatment and hard to get high. And the harm reduction effort, which sound panacea and we're going to it has done nothing to reduce uh, homeless. It's done nothing to reduce drug addiction. And deaths are skyrocketing now. And in the idea that we're naive about fentanyl, the power of fentanyl, I'm old enough. I think I'm older than you. I remember working on the street with PCP and angel dust, and we thought that was the worst possible drug. Then we moved to crack and cocaine. Then we moved in K2 and spice and 
all sorts of other varieties. Then we went into the organic opioids. We're now into synthetic opioids. And I can't tell you how many people I know who got addicted because of Pardue Pharmacy and how that got into it. And now we've made synthetics on the street that are 50 to 100 times, not 50%, not what, 5,000 to 10,000% more powerful or the same thing. The idea that you could have three grains of salt equivalent of pure fentanyl will kill everybody. Two will kill most. Grains of salt. This is how powerful these drugs are. And for us to sit there and say, oh, let everybody keep doing fentanyl. And not only that, we'll give you, we'll give you the straws, we'll give you the pipes, and we'll make it so cheap for you. And we'll even give you a site to come shoot. And you can't shoot, smoke, ingest, eat, whatever you want to do. We'll make it so easy for you. And if a new drug comes along, we're going to make it easy. And instead of that, we're not getting people into treatment recovery. When I came out in 2013 and totally bashed housing first, I said, this is never going to reduce homelessness. In fact, I said it would double. I was wrong. It tripled most of homelessness. I, I, I got to say, I underestimated how bad it would be. Because the idea that you take a housing voucher and you disconnect it from treatment made no sense. And I know you're Brit, so you probably know about Pell Grants, right? That fund federal education. Pell Grant uh, is for people who basically make under $64,000, and they can get seven, dollars $8,000 for college, private or public, so you can take it wherever you want. And But in a Pell Grant, when the federal government gives you, it's the largest single subsidy of education, higher education in America. And you know when they give you a Pell Grant? They say you have to go to class. You have to be in class 88.5% of the time. You have to have a 2.0, and you're going to get a four-year or a five-year grant. If we did Pell Grants with homeless, we would say, you got to get into treatment. If we're giving you this housing voucher or government subsidy of education, we want you in a treatment program. It's not going to work for everybody. Some people go to college, and it doesn't work for them, but we give them a try. But we have minimal standards of participation. In unemployment insurance, and I know yours, what, the UB40 form in, in Brit, if I remember correctly, it, it is... You're going back 40 years. But yeah, but that, I'm going way back. But you had to go out and start looking for work. We, we will give you that, but we also have to go out and try to get a job, too. And we have that in America. If you get unemployment insurance, and every state's a little different, but you basically have to go try to do 10 job interviews. You have to go through job training programs. But why, when it comes to homelessness, we I'm a big believer you got to have your head working and your soul working at the same time. We want sustainable help that really works. And the fact that the mayor of San Francisco in the last six months has gone to the further right of me on many of these issues. I've been talking about we need to incentivize treatment. We need to get people in treatment. We need to have, be able to have participation requirements. She came out and said nobody will get homeless services in San Francisco unless they, I, I can't remember, drug tested and drug treatment. I haven't even said that. And President Biden in the Don Lemon the town hall, if you look at the tape, and, and he says, we need to have mandatory treatment. Mandatory. I repeat, we need to have mandatory treatment. And he walks off stage and his staff says he didn't mean to say that. 
I said, he said it three times. And that's what he believes. And his staff said, you know, no, that's not really what he meant to say. California, again, specifically San Francisco, is such a peculiar case. It's an acute case. The very fact that if you apply to uh, apply for a job and are successful to be a teacher within the city of San Francisco, you're given mortgage assistance. Right. Because at the very heart of this is a lack of affordable homes. The RAN, the, so the state government. Then why doesn't San Francisco drop every tax, every fee, every planning fee there? I'll give you an example. The FBI, and I may have a little bit of the story off a little bit, but pre-9-11, it was like 1999, and I may have these numbers off. It, it, it's in the right direction, but I may have it off. I think it was giving a 60% hardship housing allowance or 45% because it was so hard to live in the Bay Area. And so many agents were living down in San Jose, down at the lower part of the Bay, but there's a need to be able to have agents to, to respond in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And there was a group in San Francisco that were working with the FBI in a preliminary stage to build a barrack, for lack of a thing, a barracks. It would be like a glorified apartment complex to create housing so agents could be near the response center. And they were working through it and such. And everybody would, so when the FBI starts saying, we need to worry about housing costs in the Bay Area in order to get our agents to be able to respond. I was involved on the very perimeter in a couple meetings, a conversation. Then 9-11 happened. And one thing is we know not to concentrate. You don't want to concentrate agents. That would have put a bullseye on that. It, it Not unlike what happened with the rain barracks in Lebanon in uh, 1983. You don't want to concentrate. So the federal government gets this, but the federal government in most cases is not the housing the demand, is what city and counties do. So is the mayor more committed to do so much they're going to drop all their fees? Is the county going to drop all their fees? And when we modeled it out and said, if I get you more vouchers and then in trade, use zero out this. And you know what they all said? Oh, we don't want to lose the revenue. And I'm like, if you're serious about affordable housing, let's get serious about it. Why, why would the federal government add money to the table and you not add any skin to the table? And in some ways, their model was having the federal government pay for their higher fees. So I just moved into an, a new flat and, oh, sorry, translation, apartment. I know. I was in your fine city in August. In Birmingham? Yeah. Wow, what, why were you in Birmingham? Because we were, uh, one of my kids really wanted to go watch some play. She's in theater, so wanted to go to the theater district. So I said, we can't afford the theater district, so we're going to move around. And so we moved all over England because I wanted to see different things. So that's why. Oh, yeah. There's a whole conversation to be had about the decline of, of my home city. I, I, I'll tell you. And, and by the way, there are some cities improving in America. There, there, there's some, like San Antonio, and I'm not involved now. I can't take, I, I can maybe take credit 20 years ago and such. But if you look at downtown Portland, downtown Seattle, downtown San Francisco, parts of parts of Honolulu, they are just, it, 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 they're gone. It, it, they're gone. And 
Then there are other places that are flourishing. And I'll tell you, there's a difference. There are different type of laws here than here. And treatment in in Florida, they still push people for treatment. And this is before DeSantis. This is every governor yeah. before believes in treatment and recovery. By and large, they have a Marchman Act. They got several different acts and such. California doesn't do it that way. And you're a product of your policy. And the reason why you, you, you keep defending San Francisco, you must be a homer for the... No, not at all. But I'm disgusted with the homelessness okay, of San Francisco. But, I'm disgusted. But you say it's I unique. understand part. But I don't think part. it's so unique. I think San Francisco's done stupid for so long, it's added up longer. I don't think it's a unique problem. I think it's the same problem. They've just done it for so long. They're the first one over the abyss. And now I I was in a, a small Democrat rural area outside Scranton, Pennsylvania, President Biden's home area. I was out making a speech in a county which with a lot of Democrat, you know, mostly D's, they left the center. Mm-hmm. And they showed me a brochure. And you know what the brochure said uh, on their homeless program? This is literally the official brochure. And it said, goal one, don't become San Francisco. There's something, when you do bad policy for so long, it adds up. Again, bad policies have been enacted in San Francisco. Also, it's uh, the rocky fuel of, I would say, hyper-individualism in politics and the peculiarities of it being bounded three sides by water and it's actually relatively small. And to many people, it's still a relatively attractive place for a whole load of emotional reasons going back to the 1960s. Yeah, So there are lots of peculiar reasons why San Francisco has ended up where it has. I'm not defending it. And people had to explain some of them to me because I was like, this is wrong. That people, like, that the tenderloin exists the way that it does. And then also the amount of non-government agency bodies that are in the tenderloin, soup kitchens, etc., people being given medical help is laudable, but to your point, also then acts as somewhat of a magnet for other people who are maybe falling into the system to say, I best get myself over to San Francisco because at least I'll get some remedial uh, medical help. I will get, I can get uh, two square meals a, a day, etc. even if I then sleep, I have to sleep on the streets. So I am not against those people and those agencies that actually want to do that, but I appreciate that they can also act as a magnet as well. ABC's Zareen Shah explores an encampment in the heart of San Francisco to learn more about what's driving this problem. In parts of San Francisco, this scene is a regular occurrence. Unhoused Americans moving street to street, like Anthony, who says he's been living in a tent for the past three years. Anthony is one of the 170,000 unhoused Californians struggling to find a permanent home. The San Francisco Department of Emergency Management telling us in a statement, unfortunately, most people either decline to engage, decline offers of shelter, or have shelter already, and we cannot compel people to come inside. But homeless advocates say the city's current 3,000 shelter bed system is not always appropriate for everyone. As of today, there are at least 350 unhoused individuals still on that wait list. The Golden State now makes up nearly a third of the nation's homeless population. 
The reasons are numerous. The high cost of living from the tech boom, the economic downturn, and mental health crises. Many across the state say they are frustrated with the growing encampments in their cities. It looks like a junkyard on our block, and it's just not safe. Over the summer, President Biden announcing an extra $3 billion in investment. But on the campaign trail, GOP presidential hopefuls have used the homeless crisis to slam Democratic leadership. We will ban urban camping. Violators of these bans will be arrested, but they will be given the option to accept treatment and services if they're willing to be rehabilitated. Many of them don't want that. So I want to tell you a funny one. I'm at dinner last night with a group of people, told them I was going to be on your show, and they literally, one person pulls me off, do you know how liberal that person is? What the hell are you doing going on his show? And I said two things. I said, I'll go on anybody's show. I'll go on I'll, I'll go on the Reed Report, anything on MSNBC. And by the way, I've tried to get on some of those when they go out and throw out garbage, and then they don't want to have another side. They always say, we reached out to the other side, and they don't. Uh, and I got to give you cred. You, you'll have me on, and we'll have a dialogue. And what I think you'll find when you spend some time talking to me, it's not what you read in the things, because... I'm dangerous to the other side because, A, I, I work in the world of facts, and B, I work in the world of data, and they don't like that. And I work in, I went to the Claremont Colleges as one of my upper-level degrees, and Peter Drucker, his last, he's known for being the business guru. People forget his last six or seven books were about nonprofits, and he really changed at the end, and it was... How do we help service delivery of cities? How do we help service delivery of nonprofits? So I've tried to apply that. And if something doesn't work, why do we do that? And that's why the right who says let's criminalize or stop paying money is just as bad because it doesn't work. Not because I philosophically agree or disagree. It doesn't work. But the left is totally bought into harm reduction and gift stuff. I got blasted by the Vice television show. They said, why do you always say housing for? And I says, engage, assess, treat based off assessment, and then house. Think about a medical model. You run into an ER. People experiencing homeless are in the ultimate emergency life. They've lost their house. They've lost their car. They're addicted. They have mental health. They've lost their family. They've burned through all their things. They're in the ultimate human condition of an ER. And if you go into an ER, they don't say, we'll just send you up to the 10th floor and put you up on uh, on a, one of the floors. They engage. We need to get you into the ER. Then they assess, oh, do you have pneumonia? Do you have viral? Do you have bacteria? Are you having a heart attack? Do you have vehicular trauma? And then they treat based off that. They don't just say, we have one size all, we're going to give you an antibiotic and you're having a stroke, you're giving having a heart attack, you got a stroke, you, you have a massive bleed out, you're going to give you an antibiotic. Dr. And Marvin, then you have... You you're, you're very good at this. You're very good at this. And I am three quarters of the way right behind you on the Marbot train, right? However, let's just go back very slightly. Okay, uh, go for it. All right, so at the start of the show, you spoke, about the reasons that got you got you involved in homelessness within the United States. Why and when did you set up Haven for Hope? And what were the metrics that you set out to gauge whether it was actually going to be successful or at least effective? 
Bill Grigge is the the founding chair, and by the way, he went for 22 years, and I was the founding president, so I went for five at the beginning and got it set up. And I had started out as a, in a youth group in a church, and we got it. Our church got into homeless when one Sunday a person had basically died at the doorstep of the church Saturday to Sunday night and was found dead in a church trying to get into the church. That's what got our community engulfed. And so I got part of that. And then over time, I did more and more parts. And I, 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 from our local group, for about five years, I was head of toiletries. So my job was to go out and get toiletries. When you used to travel pre-9-11, you'd get all these free stuff and small vials and shampoo, soap, and such. So that was my deal. So I went around to churches and said, for those of you who travel, get these big bags, and then we get the big bags and sort. That was my narrow world. I was just part of a cog in a big operation. And I kept going away. I went away for grad school, came back, went away to work on the Hill, went away to work at the White House, came back. And what I was struck by is I saw the same people that I saw before I left for a year or two. The same people were not getting out of homeless. They were staying in homeless. And there were new people coming in. And what struck me is if I ever asked, where's Jose? Where's Lisa? Where's Roberto? Where's John? When I didn't see somebody, the answer was they had died. It wasn't they got out of homeless. And I go into cities and I say, what is your number way of exiting homeless? And in most parts of the country, it is death. That is, I think the right and the left would say that's wrong. I think people of faith or people with who don't believe in faith structures, I think would say that's wrong. And how I really believe how you judge a society is how you deal with the least last of the lost. I really believe that. And if we have the way you get out of homeless is death rather than recover. And so that's why I, I think of this as a medical model. I think you got to engage a person. You have to deeply analyze because everybody has a different story. Then you got to treat based off of that situation. And then you go into housing and then hopefully you get long-term sustainability. We have a motto when we were setting up Haven for Hope, which was, we love you so much, we take you as you are, but we also love you so much to let you stay that way. And then the, for the community of faith, not and I get not everybody in your show will do that, but for the fo folks of faith is God loves you so much, he takes you as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay there. And so we create a community of recovery. Not everybody recovers. I get that. I'm not naive. If, oh man, if I can't tell you how many personal people I know have died on the street, uh, people I know, family members and such, how can we allow that to happen as the primary? So we wanted to set up a treatment-oriented, engaged treat, and our measure of success is when you're out, or do you have a sustainable housing environment. That's one measurement. Not it donated, not one subsidized, but can you have a sustainable house? Number two, did you drop the ERs? And ERs or EMS transport is an incredible proxy data point because that's not just the system use, 
but that is how many people were so traumatic that they needed a call for service. So are we reducing the ERs and EM, not just to help save taxpayers dollars, not just to help speed up hospital ER wait times. We all see those signs, 10-minute wait, 15-minute wait. Those are important, but they're a really good proxy. If you're working, you have less people hitting the trauma of the system. And on the legal side, do we have less people going into jail? The idea that I looked at jails about 15 years ago, most jails in America have about 20 to 25 percent. And I'm not talking prisons, jails. You have about 20 to 25 percent of the people that you would generally consider as experiencing homelessness. And they're often in jail for Mickey Mouse stuff, not um, to me, if you're a felon, being a home, experiencing homeless should not be a get out of jail card if you attempted rape, murder, any major felony. Yeah. But misdemeanors don't work. And they don't work for two reasons. One is judges let you out right away. They just go, this is stupid. You get out. And the other is you get no treatment. It's also why I bump into the ACLU crowd and they say, oh, you have the right to be on a park bench and you do. And I think, I don't think so. We have a, a duty as a community, a society, to help people up. But we shouldn't be saying, just hang out in that park bench, keep doing your drugs. In fact, we'll have our city come in and drink in a consumption site so you don't have to go far and just stay there and keep consuming. I think we should be bringing caseworkers into that park and saying, can we help you get out and get you into treatment? We are going to have to do a part two on this. Right. Love, love this conversation. It's been a-, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Real... Has it really been a conversation? Because when both of us have spoken, we've had the three-minute segments. Right. But but you're the guest. So your segments have been a little bit longer or whatever. Right. But we have had, we have slightly challenged each other and maybe found that those weren't necessarily true. We have much more in common than you would think. Exactly. Exactly. The one last question I have to ask you is, so 2019, President Trump says, we need to implement Haven for Hope throughout the United States. How did you feel about your, your appointment to the interagency kind of committee? And how do you assess your time there? 
It's always an honor to work at, I've worked in three presidential administrations and it's always an honor and I think a responsibility and a duty uh, to do that. Sadly, within three weeks of me getting there, I attended my very first meeting. I was sworn in after the FBI background check and such, and I got sworn in. And three weeks later, I get a call and it says, we need you in a meeting about an outbreak up in Seattle. And it seems to be similar to this HEP outbreak that you were loosely involved with in San Diego about five years earlier. We want your expertise on it. Can you come by? We didn't even have a name for it. That turns out to be COVID. And and then I ended up moving over to the COVID task force and support. And so I really, nobody really got to do any policies. Now, in terms of COVID and homelessness, let, let me hit one data thing that nobody's really talked about. There are a couple reports out and you can look at it. And even GM is starting to, was surprised when they looked at the data. There was a prediction that over 50,000 people experiencing homeless were going to die during COVID. And because of what our operation did, my, my agency, plus the other 14 departments across, plus the Salvation Army, the City Gate Network, YMCA, YWCA, Volunteers of America, the, those are the biggest agencies out there. Plus, we had some independent agencies. We started about six weeks before the National Declaration, and we started getting on calls. Every hour, we were in a different group, 100 people, 200. One of our calls had 6,000 people on it. And we said, here's what we know about COVID. Here's what we don't know. Here's what we, since last week we talked, we know better. Here's what we thought was right, but was wrong. And we admitted when we guessed wrong, guessed right, and, and did it. But the proof's in the pudding. Everybody predicted 50,000 or more people would die experiencing homeless, corrected COVID. The day I left, and by the way, I, I was one of the people, I stayed very briefly through the Biden administration. The day I left, we still had under 600 deaths of homelessness due to COVID. Every one of those is tragic. Every one of those is there. But the homeless death rate was actually less than the general population death rate. Think about that. And it was because of the partnerships. We didn't worry about politics. We didn't worry about left and right. I, the fact that I was talking to the mayor, I talked to the mayor of L.A., I think, five times. I talked to the mayor of San Francisco once. I would talk with anybody. And one of the things was like you and I were joking in the, the pre, I'll talk to, if you want to talk about homeless, I'll work with left, center. I don't think it should be political. I do think it should be common sense. And I do think it should be based in data and systems logic. And I offend some people on the right. I that, Right now, I seem to be offending more people on the left, but I will remind everybody, 20 years ago, I was offending people on the right, and I don't know if they got used to me or listen, but now I'm on the left. But the fact that you and I agree, I bet you, you and I agree way more than we disagree. And, and I know there's some disagreements. Absolutely, absolutely. It gives me no joy to say that it's maybe it's my experience living in San Francisco, which has knocked some of my just give people a roof over their head assumptions are gone. That this is a multi agency, multifaceted problem, which at its root, for me, I would say is neoliberal economics, which are squeezing working class and middle class families where exponentially living costs, housing costs have gone up since the 1970s. So something like, like 
like college tuition fees in real terms in the United States have gone up by over a thousand percent in the 1970s. And that's just one metric before you come on to medical costs, et cetera, et cetera. If you can fix that and build more homes, we're going to get rid of three quarters, not overnight, but over time, let's say 20 years of the homeless problem. But there still is going to be a stubborn proportion where it wasn't about necessarily housing. It was about some other malady, some other thing which was blocking them, right? But, but, like, but you but, had the right to say the last word, and then I'm going to wrap up. And we, you're going to have to come back on again. What we should do next time is to look at cities and countries which think they've eradicated homelessness. Because I know Finland is patting itself on the back at the moment and saying, we've got this lick. We have got our homeless figures down. Now, me personally, how the hell could you be homeless in Finland? You're going to freeze to death, right? Yeah. Weather is a big part of it. We haven't talked about yes. that. I, I've actually lived in very cold. Uh, there are a lot of people talk about homeless, and I, I go, have you lived on the street with people experiencing homelessness for half a year of your life? If you have, then you start to understand what's going on. And I want to bring up Salt Lake. And I also want to bring up some factual things, and I'll go as quick as I can. Salt Lake City said, after they did all these crazy stuff, they did all this liberal, they said they ended homeless. You can go read some stuff in 2017, 2018. They ended homelessness. They claimed it did. And everybody in America started finding out they give free stuff. And so the people on the street experienced all moved to, not all, but many moved to Salt Lake City. By the way, Salt Lake City now has more homeless than they've ever had, even though they ended it five years ago. So when a city now, there's another city in the southeast who, I don't want to pick on them, they're claiming that they've ended homeless. And I look at the trend and what the mayors away from this city have told me, all they did was push them into my city. And literally it's them and they, and what was that mayor doing? They didn't really reduce this. They just gave it to me and very cynical and, and obnoxious and, and all that. And But here's the good news. There, there really is good news. There are multiple counties, jurisdictions, cities in America that have reduced homeless by 85%, 80%, 75%, 93%, 93%, and have sustained it for over 10 years. So it's not a flash in the pan. It's not a sugar high. Of we dumped a bunch of things. And you know what? It's hard work. This is not easy stuff. And it's they. how do you control housing costs? That's part of it. How do you deal with substance abuse? How do you deal with untreated mental illness? How do you change a police perception that we're not going to arrest you and bang you up, and instead we're going to divert you? In San Antonio, the go-to thing with all 22 police agencies, including ESA at the airport when a person is drunk on a plane in first class, and seriously, they come to our campus, and they don't go to jail. They come to our campus. And they get got, go through treatment. And in particular, some go to detox, some go to treatment, some go to the courtyard, some go to right into permanent supportive housing. Everybody is different. And as soon as we stop treating all homeless as the same, you would never run an ER that way. We only have, we only, we don't carry a, a heart defib. We don't carry thinners. We don't carry, all we do is carry an antibiotic. And no matter what you got, we got it. And that's this one size fits all of housing first is a 
literally the same thing as saying we got an antibiotic in an ER and we're going to use it for everything that comes in the door. There's some it will work for. Absolutely, there's some. and But it's not the majority. And you have to customize it per person, per cohort. And if you do that, the cities who've done it have had sustained success. So your idea that you need to do this over 20 or 30 years, most of the cities who do that get their greatest success in the first six months. But you have to fundamentally stop doing stupid. And you have to change. And what was it, Aristotle, that said, if you keep doing dumb things, will keep happening. Robert Spurs. It was Aristotle, but, but, but I appreciate. I, you know, the more informal quote is the, the, the repeating of an effort and expecting a different outcome. I, you said you wanted to not walk it. You wanted to go up. So we're going up. Listen, Dr. Robert Marbot, tell people where they can catch up with you online. Give us your web address and tell us exactly what you're doing at the moment. Uh, first off, make sure you go watch Americans with No Address documentary that will be coming out shortly. You you will see 85 people right, left, and center passionate about this. And it will also show you cities of great success, to your point. We show seven or eight. And one crazy one, my favorite one is John Hopkins University getting together with a Christian mission clinic and putting them together, science and faith together. And, and you're like... If you, and they both talk about it. there's great, great, it's a great, one of the, my favorite part of the movie. So watch that. We have no address movie coming out. That's going to talk about more, less wonky, if you will, but Billy Baldwin's in it, Beverly D'Angelo, Ashanti's in it, Xander Berkeley, a bunch of other folks that are just fabulous. And then we also got an interactive study guide. So we have a whole suite of opportunities you can learn a lot about no address the movie you can go sort it and go um the other is the discovery institute is doing fabulous work in this area fixhomeless.org you can go there and you'll see a lot of writings and you may not agree with one you may not agree with the other but at least there's people starting to say let's think about this in a very thoughtful and not and i don't want to say nonpartisan. But I, I, I don't think this should be a political issue. I don't think this should be a Republican-Democrat. I think it needs to be a logical issue. I think it needs to be a thoughtful issue and such. So fixhomelessness.org with Discovery Institute. And anybody can always contact me directly. Go morbidconsulting.org and you can get. So if you want to do the movie, go to the movie. That get, you're, you're a person. You're probably not going to want, but maybe you'll watch the movie, but you'll watch the documentary and you're going to go, oh my, that'll give you three versions of this and you can bring some of those people in and such. The movie, fixhomelessness.org or marvitconsulting.org and you'll get a lot of information. Will you come on next month? I will. I'll come on next month. I'm going to start, I'll get my people to speak to your people, but I've got my people, I'm just me. I'll, (laughs) I'll speak to your people and we'll get you on next month. Because I need to watch the documentary, the movie, and do a little bit more reading, and then we can then unpack, I, I believe is the current part. See if your people would talk to my people and see if you can get a preview of the documentary. Me, me, Not only will you want, yeah, yeah, you might want to say, hey, I need to read Xander Berkeley on or Billy Baldwin. By the way, I got to tell you, Billy Baldwin, is the most thoughtful. I, I, He used to go out with Secretary Cuomo, Secretary Hud and Clinton. He used to go out and spend weekends about once a month, and the two of them would go 
to a facility, sleep on the street, go into a Salvation Army, go into a rescue mission and such. And so Billy's been around this issue going into third decade now, and he has gotten so passionate about it. And you'll see it when you watch the documentary, and he's our narrator of the documentary. He, he said, I want to do this. He said, I don't agree with everything you say, Robert, but you know what? It, same thing, much more in common. And it tell you what, if we just start working on the stuff we agree on and let's not worry about the fringe stuff, after we get homelessness dropped 75%, then let's go fight over the 25%, you know, in different. But let's at least agree for the first 75%. You just say no address movie and it will come up. I guarantee it will come up. Fixhomelessness.org uh, with Discovery Institute and or just marbitconsulting.org. Any of those three places, you get a lot of information. Fantastic. That's everyone's homework. To the goodly few thousand listeners that, that download the podcast and that man who's so liberal, then if I should be offended by that, I'm not liberal, I'm progressive, sir, but I'm also <laughs> fair minded. I was told I shouldn't go on your show last night. And you said that. You said and that. Literally, I had two people say, Do you know whose show you're going on? And I said, I'll go on any show. And I said, and I bet him last night, I said, I bet you're going to have much more in common than people think. Because, you, you know, like you said, when you did a cursory look, I got horns and a dragon and what I'm mean <laughs> and ugly. That's just, listen, I get told I'm for criminalization. Every speech I make, and we've it's covered it here two or three times. Every speech I make, everything I put together, every slideshow, I said, criminalization doesn't work. Yet I got people from the left, far left, and my view is they're attacking me because they're afraid of the truth and the center. That so they want to discount me because I leaned in early and I said this is dumb and it's not going to work. The last few things I've been introduced, they've introduced me as a sage and canary in the coal mine, and I haven't changed. We're going to see you in about thirty days' time, sir. When everybody's done their homework, so listeners. You know where to go, watch, download, read, and then we're going to come back and we're going to try and analyze why Finland could make the claim that they have done. And also, we'll look at in detail some of these American cities that have had not only just a sugar high of massaging the figures for maybe six months, but some sustained success. The reason why is because I'm incredibly passionate about this as a topic. As I said at the top of the show, I believe in cities. The future of humanity is for us to live closer and closer with each other. And if that is going to be the future, we need a way that all of us can have the equity of at least a roof over our heads. And we've got to understand that when we have a small but significant proportion of our prop- of our communities who are homeless, that impacts on all of us as well. Our public spaces are not as safe for our children, etc. The problems go on and on. And just because we are fortunate enough to have a mortgage or live in inverted commas in a nice place, we cannot push this problem underneath the rug. For no other reason than in an American sense, your medical premiums go up. So let's try and fix this issue. Let's investigate this issue. I'm going to have Dr. Robert Marber back. You know what? It didn't have horns. It doesn't have a tail. He's actually quite a nice guy. Dr. Robert Marbert, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and having a wonderful conversation with me. We're going to see you again in March. This has been me, Royful Brown. This has been Mid-Atlantic. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.